Uh, it is good to be back here. I, I know so many of you guys uh, personally, but such a, such a good time to be back and see familiar faces and hope to catch up with you guys this afternoon and tomorrow as well. Um, I'm here uh, excited to speak to you on the topic, but also on behalf of Grace Church, I talked to our elders and they sent me with joy to greet you guys and to say that we support you guys as a church and it's uh, good to be here with you guys representing Grace Community. And uh, know that I've been praying for you, Jan and I, uh, we did seminary, we have half our seminary time over life together, so I knew him for many years in the past, so it's good to just be praying for you guys and for the success of your church, and of course, unity as well, as we'll be talking about this weekend. Um, well, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians, so go ahead and take your Bible, go to Ephesians, and um, we'll, we'll kind of be all over the place, because this is going to be a topical message. And as we begin, I want you to ask yourself, what do you find your identity in? What defines you? Who are you as an individual and what do you attach your identity to? Some of you guys are wearing baseball caps and perhaps there's a logo on there and you feel like, okay, that's my alma mater. That's where I went to school or that's my sports team and I'm affiliated with that. I'm loyal to it. I know you guys most likely like your NorCal team, and they lost this year, unfortunately, to Toronto, but they're good. You know, Curry is not too bad. Um, maybe it's where you got your education, and you invested so much time, so much money into it that it defines you, and so you were proud of wearing that sweatshirt that said Sac State or something else. Perhaps it's somewhere else, abroad. Maybe it's your friendships that define you, and you find your identity in the social circle that you run in. Perhaps it's a zip code. I'm not too familiar with Sacramento. I know there's some very nice areas here, uh, but perhaps you live in an affluent area and your, your identity is defined by your zip code. For some of us, it's the church, the position we hold in the church, the status, the title. And if the title is taken away, you recoil and you become upset with the pastor, with the leadership asking, why are you taking away my title? Where do you find your identity? If I were to sit down with you one-on-one this afternoon and ask you, what defines you? I bet you at some point, pretty quickly in the conversation, you would say Christian. Most of you, in fact, I would hope all of you quickly in the conversation would say, I'm a Christian. But did you know that in the Bible, in the New Testament, Christian, the term appears only three times. And it's always in a negative context. You see, the Christians in the first century did not self-identify as Christians. People called them Christians as a derogatory term. It was an insulting term to be called a Christian. In the New Testament, the most consistent and the most popular term, and it's not even a term, it's a saying that defined a Christian. His or her identity is in Christ. In him, of him, through him, for him, it's always connected to Christ. There are over a hundred references to us being in him, in the Lord, in Jesus. That is the most consistent use by the New Testament writers to define a Christian. Listen to some theologians who have spoken about this doctrine of union with Christ. That is what we're going to be talking about this morning, our union with Christ. One author said this, union with Christ summarizes our entire Christian existence. 
A.W. Pink, I'm sure you've heard of his name before, says the subject of spiritual union is the most important, the most profound, and the most blessed of any that is set forth in sacred scriptures. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor from England, said this, doctrine about the union of the Christian with the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what makes us Christians. Apart from this, we are not in the Christian position at all. The doctrine is so glorious and great that it includes the whole of the Christian life. He later said, we are undoubtedly face to face with one of the greatest and most marvelous of all the Christian doctrines. One of the most glorious beyond any question at all. One of our pastors at Grace said this union with Christ is the hub of all doctrines The rest of the doctrines are like spokes connected in place by this single doctrine. And finally, John Murray professor from the 1800s theologian said this union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Indeed, the whole process of salvation has its origin in one phase of union with Christ and salvation has in view the realization of other phases of union with Christ union with Christ underlines every single doctrine of redemption. In other words, your entire salvation from start to finish to glory to you being resurrected in heaven hinges on this simple truth. You and I are united with Christ. So I hope you understand the value and the gravity of this doctrine in the book of Ephesians, our union with Christ is mentioned over 40 times in chapter one, which I know you studied last night. You went through that chapter with Jan. There are 13 references to our union with Christ in one chapter, more verses reference union with Christ than do not. From the very beginning, Paul wanted to put that truth in front of the Ephesians and in front of us by extension that we are united with Christ. This should identify you. It needs to define you today as a believer. It determines your future destiny. It marks you out from everyone who doesn't belong to Christ. And it regulates all the blessings that flow from God, the father to you. It's because of your union with Christ. Listen to Ephesians chapter two, verse, verse four, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he, God may show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Five references to our union with Christ in these few verses. This is the most condensed and concentrated passage in the Ephesians on this topic. You see, the reason God gave you life, the reason you're seated in the heavenlies, the reason you have been designated as for the ages to come, you will experience the surpassing riches of his grace is because of Christ. You don't exist in God's mind 
apart from Christ. That's how tight this relationship is. And so this morning, I'd like to give you eight aspects or eight components of this doctrine. What does it mean to be united with Christ? This is going to be a topical study. So we'll be flipping all over the new Testament, concentrating ourselves in Ephesians, but there are eight components. When you look at this teaching holistically from the new Testament, and it is a comprehensive list. This is what it means for you to be united with Christ. And first off, it's an eternal union. Your union with Christ is an eternal union in Ephesians one verse four. You looked at this last night. This is what we read. Just as he, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, your and my predestination choosing election is attached to Christ. It has been from eternity past. God never ever considered you apart from an attachment to Jesus Christ. From eternity past, our entire salvation process hinges uh, on us being united to Christ. John Murray said this, the perspective of God's people isn't narrow. It's broad and it's long. It's not confined to space and time. It reaches into eternity. Its orbit has two foci, one of the electing love of God. That's eternity past. The other glorification with Christ in the manifestation of his glory. That's an eternity future. The former has no beginning election, eternity past. The latter has no end. Our union with Christ is an eternal union. Get that. In other words, if you're a Christian, God always thought of you in connection to Jesus Christ. Even before you were born, God knew he would be saved. God elected you. And he always thought of you in relationship with Jesus. First Thessalonians 4:14 and verse 16 says this, they are dead in Christ. In other words, we're so closely connected to him that that relationship isn't severed in death. And the next verse, verse 17 of first Thessalonians four says, and so we shall be forever with the Lord. In other words, it's this, it's as if death is just a passageway into our eternal permanent presence with Christ, with whom we have been attached and associated with from eternity present, eternity past rather. In other words, to put it simply, you don't exist apart from Christ as a believer. Your identity is rooted in Christ all the way back in eternity. So all the blessings that you experience, the spiritual and the physical, the material blessings are channeled toward you by the father because of Christ. It's not because of you and me. It's not because of who you are. It's not because of what you've done. It's not because of where you were born. It's because of your association with Jesus Christ. That's why we saw that in chapter one. We'll see that we saw that in chapter two, God channels his blessings as you are a trophy of his grace to you because of Christ. Secondly, it's a living union. It's an eternal union. And secondly, it's a living union. The beginning point of our living union is our regeneration. The point where God gave you new life, new spiritual life. And you were resurrected from being a spiritually dead person to now being alive with Christ. Ephesians two verse one says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, verse four, but God, verse five, made you alive. 
That's the living union we're talking about. That's the point where God justifies you. He declares you righteous before him. He forgave you of your sins and he will never judge you for those sins because you are in Christ. That's why Romans 8, 1 says there is no now con- no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the union. And that is the forgiveness of sin component. Paul applies the imagery of burial and resurrection in baptism. Again, to stress our union with Christ. We have died with him and we resurrect with him past and future. Again, everything focuses on our connection to Christ. And then the new Testament presents multiple metaphors to explain this living union. Consider the body. Ephesians four. We'll talk about that tomorrow morning. Ephesians four talks about us being in a body members of one body. First Corinthians 12 talks about being members of one body. And this union consists of multiple parts. Each of us is a part. You guys will talk about uh, the Trinitarian impact on our union Sunday morning. But the second half of chapter four, and I think you have studied this in church already in the last six months or so, but there is an expectation that you are an active member. If you are not serving in the church and you're a believer, the church is limping because of your inactivity. You can never think I'm dispensable. You can't think that it's okay. There's there are other preachers. There are other uh, teachers, Sunday school teachers, other musicians. If you're a believer, you have a spiritual gift for which you will give an account to God and you are required to use it for the maturity of the church. Ephesians four fifteen through 17. That's the active component to it being in the body. So you can think of yourself as a finger, as an ear, as a arm, as a leg, as something, some kind of body component in the church. And the body functions well when it's whole, right? When it's not sick. Anybody sick this morning? All right, good. That's, that's a good thing. I'm glad no hands went up. But you know what it's like to be sick. And you don't like it. And the rest of the body hurts, So when the body isn't functioning together, it is sick and it's not whole. You would be shocked. I hope alarmed if later this afternoon, you saw my arm laying all by itself somewhere, right? Dismembering isn't healthy. It's not normal. In other words, a Christian who isn't attached to the body of Christ is not a healthy Christian. The New Testament uses the metaphor of the body to explain this living dynamic. It also uses the metaphor of marriage, the union between a husband and a wife. And in a good marriage, they communicate, they love. The husband provides, protects, leads, and loves his wife. The wife respects her husband, submits to her husband. The the New Testament always also uses the vine and the branches metaphor agricultural language to explain this living union. That's in John 15. Jesus says, I'm divine. You're the branches. It's not a mechanical union. It's not a robotic union. It's an organic, vital life flowing union. Just think of the tree. That's all the tree next to you, maybe around you. There's life there. The branches are attached. The sap flows through it. That's what it means to be in a vital relationship with Christ. And it also uses the imagery of a temple. 
First Peter 2 talks about that. You are a spiritual temple that is joined together. And even the stones are called living stones. So the New Testament writers are picking up multiple metaphors, trying to explain to us as believers, what does it mean to be united to Christ? All the language focuses on life. It's a living union because regeneration infused life into you. Now this life flows through you and affects people around you and takes us to our third component of being in union with Christ. And that is, it's a spiritual union, eternal living and now spiritual union. Romans chapter eight verses nine through 11 speak of this spiritual union. You are, Paul says, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. In other words, if you don't have the Holy spirit, you don't belong to Christ. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. It's a spiritual union. If you have the Holy spirit, you have the spirit of Christ. Paul says you possess the mindset, the understanding of Christ. First Corinthians two, the end of the chapter. That's what Paul says in first Corinthians six verse 17 the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Again, there's a component of a metaphysical, a mystical kind of connection. We can't fully explain that, but is the term, it is the terminology that Paul uses in multiple passages. And in Colossians 1:27, Paul calls this a mystery. It says, this is the mystery that's hidden from the ages past and generation. It is now manifested to his saints to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery in the, among the Gentiles. That is Christ in you. That's a mystery. Yes. There's a mystery that the Gentiles and the Jews are united. That is another new Testament mystery that's finally revealed, but there's also this mystery of Christ in you the hope of glory. And that's what I mean by we can't fully explain what that means. I hope eternity will help us understand that even better for us to be connected in this spiritual union with Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that he is somehow physically in you. That's not what that means. You are who you are, but you have an attachment, a personal connection with Christ, which is why Paul in the next verse in Colossians 1 28 makes it a personal union, which is our fourth component. It is a personal union. Paul says this, we proclaim him admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man mature in Christ. That's the personal component. Every single person individually is being transformed into the likeness of Christ. If you like to get away alone, walk in the woods, go for a drive, walk along the beach. I know you have to drive for two hours to get to the beach, but maybe life is that difficult that you'll drive for two hours to walk along the beach. 
and you want to find yourself. You want to get away and just kind of figure out your identity. If you're prone to those kind of things, or maybe it's a song that you like to listen to and you ask yourself, who am I? You might've been doing that as a high school student, or college student, but life happens. Trials enter our lives and they at times upset our stability, our identification. Who are we? So if you're asking yourself, who am I? Paul says, you are in Christ and you can never divorce that. You can never separate yourself from that. No matter which way you want to answer that question, who am I? You always have to answer it in this way. I am in Christ. And that gives you meaning. That should be your self understanding. You see this truth, you being as an individual again in Christ should transform how you think of yourself as a Christian. Let me say it this way. Your self understanding of a Christian is not about doing something. It's about being someone. Do you get that? Oftentimes we feel like I'm a Christian because I'm doing something because I came to this camp because I'm going to go to church on Sunday because I'm going to go to Bible study midweek because I'm in the choir, because I'm in the youth group or whatever, because I'm doing something. Therefore I'm a Christian. The new Testament concept is the reverse. You are someone, you are a Christian from that foundational component of your life. Doing flows out and we'll talk about doing just a few minutes, but begin to reverse that understanding. It's about who you are not about what you do. So we are talking about an identity shaping and identity defining doctrine. So in Colossians three, three, Paul says our life, Colossians three, three, once again, our life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you get that? Your life. He doesn't say your salvation. He doesn't say your sanctification. He doesn't say your ability to do something. He says your life. What is life? Existence, right? If you're alive, you exist. If you're not alive, you don't exist. Your existence is in Christ. That is the intimacy we're talking about. It was so perplexing to Paul that in Galatians 2:20 he tried to untangle it and you know this verse but he couldn't and this is what he says Galatians 2:20 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me so consistent with Colossians 3:3 3, 3. and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me so I'm crucified I no longer live, but no, actually, no, he lives. Do you see the complexity there? The country, the, not the contradiction, the perplexity. That's the word. Even Paul, the theologian couldn't fully explain what it means for you to be wrapped up in Christ holistically. We have a union that binds us to him so intimately that he lives through us. 
That's what Paul is talking about. It's a union that is personal and transforming. One theologian calls it as a Christian life that is a life of cruciformity. In other words, your entire life is fixed on the cross. Cruciformity, that's the word. Everything that you do, everything who you are, the way you think about yourself has to be in reference to the cross. What happened at the cross and what the cross accomplished for eternity. Ultimately leading to our resurrection. One person said it this way, the behavior of Christ is the ground of the believer's redemption. If the believer denies the relevance of Christ's actions to his own, then he is denying his very existence in Christ. What Christ did for you and I on the cross is the defining moment for our existence. And if you somehow begin to detach yourself from that or begin to deny that, you are denying your very existence. That's what critical that is. So my life is his life. His life is my life, which means my life needs to mimic his life. It means that what he did, what he accomplished, the pattern that he set for us must impact my life. This is the doing. I must be obedient to the point of shameful death. I must be sacrificial to the point of giving up whatever it takes to be like Christ. All of my existence needs to be shaped by my connection to Christ. That's the personal union we're talking about. In 1 Corinthians 6, let me not, 1 Corinthians 6, 17 says this, one who joins himself to him is one with him. That's the connection we are talking about. Well, it leads us to a corporate union because you can't be doing unless it affects others, right? Most of the Christian life, as Ephesians 4 makes it clear, is in connection to others. So that is a corporate union. We have been grafted into a community. It's a community. This is a community, a local church. And so our life exists in this community. It's founded, shaped, and directed by Jesus, who is our head, but it is us belonging to this community, ultimately to the universal church, but practically daily, weekly, local church. So by belonging to Christ, you belong to each other. Just remember that for the rest of your life. If for some reason God moves you from Sacramento, somewhere else, you can't just move and be away from Christians. The first thing you should be doing as a believer and thinking, okay, what church am I going to get connected to? You're not going to be a solitary Christian in the woods. You're not going to have a house church for you and your family. That is not a new Testament concept. There's not a family church idea. The father is the pastor. The wife is a deacon, I guess, deaconess. And then the children are all the members. That's not a new Testament concept. Your first thought needs to be what church am I going to be a part of? We'll talk about this tomorrow morning. When Ephesians four Verses four through seven, it's all about being connected to one another. And I talked about this just a minute ago. It's because you have a gift and you need to use it until you finally, we all as a universal church finally arrive to the maturity of Christ. 
But this union with each other is to imitate the Trinitarian union. I don't want to steal away from Max's sermon on Sunday, but just a couple verses for you to contemplate in prep for Sunday morning. John 17, 11 says this, that they may be one. Jesus is praying for the believers, even as we are one, the father and the son. John 17, 21, that they may be one, even as you father are in me and I in you that they may be in us. So the standard for our union with each other is the standard or the model that Jesus sets in his relationship to the father. John 17, 22 and 23, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I am them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The union between the believers must mimic the union between the father and the son. And that union ultimately becomes a testimony to the watching world. Jesus says they need to be united so that the world may know that you sent me. In other words, the reason that our unity matters is because it's a witness to those who are outside. And Jesus said, by your love for one another, they will know that you're my disciples. John 14, 15, doesn't it say that? That's just a component of this union. So if you have a problem with another believer, perhaps even in this group, perhaps you have a problem talking about other people negatively, of course, perhaps you just can't get over a grudge. You're angry with other believers. Union with Christ, union with each other has to shatter that because our union with each other has to be just like the father's union with the son. And there are no grudges in that relationship. There is no gossip in that relationship. There is no anger in that relationship. That's the standard. Just as, just as, just as you either believe that and in the original language, that phrase is just one word, just as, but it is critical in the way it's introduced in John 17, multiple times to demonstrate. This is the model, the father and the son's relationship. This is the model for the believers. Just as, just as, just as over and over and over, not just in John 17, the whole gospel. So if you think, well, yeah, I'm good, but I'm struggling a little bit. No, just as until your relationship with each other reaches the relationship of Jesus and the father, which is perfect. I and the father are one John 10 30. So unless you can be completely in the same in line, completely united until then, we aspire to that and we don't give up. That's the corporate union we're talking about. Our union with Christ shapes our relationships. It has to, and there are no excuses. Well, sixth, our union is a productive union. It's a productive union. The final words from Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 28, were who can help me out here. What did Jesus say to his disciples right before he ascended? Go and make disciples. What does that sound like? Produce, right? Go do something. 
You have a mission to accomplish. Go be active. Go and make disciples. That's the final word from Jesus. John 15, 16. I chose you and I appointed you to bear fruit. John 15, 5. He who abides in me and I abide in him, he bears much fruit. John 15, 8. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Ephesians 2.10, let's take us back to our book. You have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Romans 7.4, you have died and you have been joined to Jesus so that you would bear fruit for God. In other words, our relationship with Christ has to be a productive relationship. A Christian lives a productive life. We're not talking about producing finances necessarily. We're talking about ultimately spiritual fruit, the fruit of the spirit. Jesus says in John four to his disciples, the fields are white with harvest. Go and ask that the Lord of the harvest would send in harvesters. That's us. Jesus speaking to his disciples, go and take care of the harvest. And this is how vital this is that when Jesus wanted to explain to his antagonists in John chapter eight, that he and the father are united. They have the same purpose. They have the same mission. They're fully on the same page in John 10 verse 38. This is 37, 38. This is what it says. They were accusing him of being of the devil, not being of God. And so Jesus says this, if I do not do the works of my father, in other words, if my works that I'm performing are not connected to God, don't believe me. Verse 38. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. So instead of just saying, okay, look, if you don't believe what I'm saying, then take a look at what I'm doing and believe with your own eyes. Believe what? So that you may know and continue to know that the father is in me and I am in the father. Do you see the connection between work and union? The reason that Jesus was trying to demonstrate uh, rather perform works is to prove to those who are watching his own disciples at times, the crowds. And of course the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers that they all would listen and ultimately say he's from God. He's one with God. Jesus pointed to his life of production as proof for his union with God. Do you get that? So if you are wondering if you have assurance questions in your life, perhaps you are. I did when I was 19, I remember doubting my salvation seriously to the point of tears, literal tears. Russians, Russian men don't cry. That's just the rule we live by. But, you know, I cried when I was 19. I think that was the last time I cried. (laughs) You might be in a similar spot. Grew up in a Christian home, always going to church, never seen a radical change in your life. And you're thinking, am I saved? The way you can answer that, I looked, we already quoted John 15. Produce much fruit and you will prove that you're my disciple. Jesus said, Look at my works and they prove that I'm united to God. That's the idea of production of doing stuff for God. And Jesus said in John 15 two, every branch in me bears fruit. And the one that doesn't, 
I will cut off. So union with Christ is a productive union. Number seven, and then we'll have one more. It's a sanctifying union. There are multiple ways to approach sanctification. Multiple authors in the New Testament approach it differently. Peter approaches it as a death match in first Peter chapter two. You're always at war. So that's one angle. Paul approaches it as a boxing match in first Corinthians nine. I buffet my body. I make it my slave lest after I have preached to others, I myself will be disqualified. So as a boxing match context is sanctification. Jesus approaches it as amputation. If your eye troubles you and tempts you gouge it out. If your arm tempts you cut it off. In other words, take any measure necessary, any drastic measure necessary to avoid sin at all costs. That's the lesson there. But I would say there should be a more motivating mindset for your and my sanctification. And that is our union with Christ. Go to first Corinthians six. I haven't made you flip too much yet, but please go to first Corinthians six. Verse 13 Paul is quoting a famous axiom of his day. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. In other words, Hey, it's just physical. I can do whatever I want with my body because it's just physical. It's a platonic concept that was promoted by the philosopher of his day, philosophers of his day. And it's as if nothing matters. I can do whatever I want with my body because it's going to deteriorate and we're good. So Paul says, let's think about that in the Christian life. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. But the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Verse 15. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? May it never be the strongest way to say anything in the Greek language. That phrase may it never be. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. In other words, you are always with Christ. You always take Christ with you. You can never sever yourself from Christ. He's with you when you're on your phone. He's with you when you're on your computer. He's with you when you're in an argument. He's with you when you can't control your thoughts in bed. He's with you when you're planning vengeance. He's with you when you're cheating. Christ is always with you. That's first Corinthians six. That should motivate a Christian toward holiness. Because whatever you do, you are one with Christ. You are dragging him into that sin. Do you get that? The sin that he died for? If you have a hard time imagining what it was like, though this is a very violent movie, The Passion of the Christ, very accurate historically of what Jesus went through physically. Beyond that, the spiritual anguish that caused them to, to ask God the Father three times the same request, I find a different way. I don't want to take this cup. Find a different way. And the father was silent. And then we bring him into the process of sinning for which he died. 
Understanding that you and I are united to Christ has to stop you before you sin. It has to cause you to think twice, is this really worth it to go on that website? To do that on my taxes? Is it really worth it? Because you and I are united with Christ. Romans chapter six, verses 11 and 12, Paul gets even more direct. We know Romans as a very theological work. And you would assume that in this work, Paul would tell you what to do pretty quickly in the book, right? Do you know when the first command appears in the book of Romans? The very first command? It's here. Romans 6, verses 11 and 12. For five chapters, Paul hasn't given us a single command. And this is the first thing that he says. 6.11. Even so... Consider yourself. That's the first command. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, because you are alive in Christ Jesus, union with Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so as to obey its lusts. You guys, the first thing that Paul thought of after saying you are in Christ, you have been justified verse chapters four and five is stop sinning. You're united with Christ. Stop sinning. Not start serving in the church. Not start giving away as much as possible. Stop sinning. That is the proximity of union to sanctification. In Romans 6 verses 11 and 12. You guys... I hope that helps you think differently about your sanctification for the rest of your life. And that is a sanctifying union. And that should be a motivating component because I'd never invite Jesus. If he was hanging out right here and I knew I'm going to go sin tonight, I'm not going to take him here. Come with me. That's crazy. That's shocking to even think about. You're going to do the opposite. You're going to try to find somebody to talk to Jesus so that you can escape to sin, right? You know, move them to another conversation. That's what we would do. But that's what we do in reality every time we sin. And finally, it's a glorious union. Sanctifying union and finally, it's a glorious union. This is the end. This is where everything ends. First Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 20, Paul says this. Now in Christ, now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits from those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. We are united with Christ in a glorious union of the resurrection. And then he jumps to the end of the chapter, verse 51. I'm going to read the last seven verses. Just get the overwhelming expectation, anticipation of being with Christ and being with him in a glorious body. Listen to this. 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed for this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will put on immortality Then will come about the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that union. We overcome death and sin through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. This final component of union with Christ should motivate you to live a life for Christ. Get this. All your efforts in the church are worth it. All of them. Spending time counseling couples at 10 PM because you had a long day of work and that's the only time that's available is worth it. Spending time with high school kids, junior high kids, primary school kids, even though they don't listen, they forget. I don't remember a single sermon that I learned, heard when I grew up at Grace Church as a junior higher. And Rick Hahn was my pastor and he's a great preacher. I don't remember a single sermon, but it wasn't wasted. According to first Corinthians 15, your sacrifices financially are worth it. Your sacrifices to be in the choir, to come early, get up early. Those who sang got up earlier than the rest of us. Didn't you? If you did, just say yes. Thank you. You did. To serve us. It's worth it for you. Every sacrifice you have ever made, every mission trip you took, every sermon you preached, every this, this small group that you led, it's all worth it. Every faithful evangelistic event that you had, it's worth it. Even when you had to overcome fear, it's worth it. Because ultimately the reward is glorious resurrection. Paul says our future glorious union with Christ is what makes ministry worth it. Your labor, your toil is not in vain. That's the promise. So we began by saying this. Our union with Christ is an eternal union. God never thought of you apart from thinking of you in Christ. And because of that, Romans 8:29 rings true for eternity. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. From the very beginning, the whole point was for you and me to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. That's the eternal union we're talking about. And first John chapter three says, and when we see him face to face, we will be like him. Full imitation of moral union. As we wrap it up in Rome in revelation 22, you can't turn to it just to see what your future will be like. Revelation chapter 22 in verses three and four, John the apostle teleports us into heaven, into the throne room of God. And this is what he says about us in that context. Verse three, there will be no longer a curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him. 
They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Just a year before writing Revelation, John wrote the gospel of John. And in chapter one, verse 18, he says this, no one has ever seen God at any time. Do you remember that verse? And then here, a year later, he writes Revelation 22 and says, they will see his face. What happened? Christ happened. John is all about the incarnation of Christ. Christ happened. Salvation happened. We happened. And now for eternity, we will see the face of Christ, who is the perfect and permanent representation of God. And we're going to be so closely connected to him. We're going to be resembling him in such a way that it says his name will be on our foreheads. If something is on your forehead, guess what? Everybody will notice, right? And people will stare at you and you'll feel uncomfortable because they're not looking in your eyes. They're looking at your forehead. Try that this afternoon with somebody. That's the point. If you are reflecting God on your forehead, everybody notices that's eternity. That's the glorious union we are headed toward. You and I will represent the father and the son forever. That's our eternity reflecting them. And so A.W. Pink's words are worthy at the very end. What an astonishing thing is that there should be a union between the son of God and the worms of earth. Infinitely more so than if a king of England married the poorest and the humblest woman. How immeasurable is the distance between the creator and the creature, between deity and mortal man. How wonderful beyond words that sinful wretches should be made one with him whom the seraphim veil their faces and cry, holy, holy, holy. And yet we are united with him forever. I hope that encourages you and excites you in your Christian life. Because that is from eternity past to eternity future. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this amazing promise, for this truth is that we are united with your son. And you think of us in regard to your son. All the blessings that you give us are because of your son. The forgiveness that we experience is through your son. The transformation that's happening is in the likeness of your son. And then you've given us the privilege to forever reflect your son. As we think about this truth, help, it, help us to never become tired in serving, in fighting, in continuing to live for you because we are in Christ. Be glorified through our lives because of this truth. And those who may be here who are still not yours, they're not united to Christ, impress this promise on their hearts and on their minds. And we ask that the Holy Spirit would give them new life so that it too may be united with Christ. Amen.